0: Ruth, chapter 1, first six verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would, you would bless this, not only the reading, but now the preaching of your word, that you would go forth and that you would open ears to hear, open eyes to see, and soften hearts to receive the glory of Christ on display here, especially here. And would you instruct us, would you equip us in ways that we need it here. There's just a handful of bodies, handful of heads and hearts gathered in this room, Lord. I do not question, we should not doubt that you can make this word come alive for each one of us in very special ways. But only if you do it. Not because of anything any one of us brings here, but only because of you and your work. So do it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are defining moments in life. There's no denying that. Moments when a decision changes the course of your entire life. Sometimes you make the decision. Sometimes the decision is made for you by a husband or maybe a wife, by a leader, by a business partner. Many defining moments and many decisions made. The difficulty arises when we see these decisions made based on what we call the the grass is greener syndrome. You're familiar with it, we all know it. It's a phrase, I probably say, almost once a week. Grass is greener. It's this condition, part of the human condition, I'm sure, part of our sin condition. I'd say it's gotten even greater, even stronger with what we see in modern times with social media. If you're not a frequent visitor to social media, then then you can't fully appreciate how amazingly powerful it is to sell to us, to pull us deeper into this grass is greener idea. Because on it we see the presentation of others' lives, and we see, of course, all the sweet, all the good, all the impressive, all the desirable We don't see the struggles, the difficulties, the challenges, the disappointments. We don't see the brokenness. We only see the presentable. And in our sinful desire to compare ourselves to others and to even envy others, to covet, the grass is greener syndrome, well, it makes us envy, makes us covet. Grass is greener. No matter how good your lawn looks, the lawn next door always looks better for some reason. Or if it's not next door, it's the one on the corner. No matter how things are going for you, you can always find someone who's in a more favorable situation. Even when things are going well, we can still do this. We can want their house. We can want their spouse. We can want their job. We can want their situation. And we think if I could just go over there as if it would solve all of our problems. But this grass is greener syndrome, of course, only gets more severe in times when things are not going well for us. The question presented to us is what do you do when actually the grass is brown on your side of the fence, when things seem dried up, lifeless, when it feels hopeless? What do you do when you are where God has placed you best you can understand? You're where God calls you to be. You're with God. You say, I'm a Christian. It just shouldn't be like this. What do you do when it looks like the grass is greener outside of God? This story presents to us the process that if we're not careful, we can all go through, but by God's grace, we can be strengthened through. It's not a map, it's not a plan, a path I would lay out for any one of us. As you'll hear at the end, I would desire another path, another plan for us. But we'll see how God is gracious despite our going astray. We'll see four things here. We'll see the famine. We'll see the fork in the road. We'll see the folly. And then we'll see faith. The famine first. Confronts us, flies in our face in the very first verse. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, the introduction is intentional. The book of Judges obviously placed immediately before this book of Ruth in our English Bibles. When you think of the book of Judges, you're not surprised to hear the word famine. The days when the judges ruled can be summed up with that famous refrain from the book, which you know if you've just read it and turned the page over to Ruth. It's the very last sentence of the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now it's a refrain, it's said from beginning to end. But it would be fair to say that this word famine is intended to have a double meaning. There is a literal famine of food in the land where Elimelech lives with his family, because there's a famine of faith in the land. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Faithlessness abounds, and so famine comes. Judges is a really hard book to read, not because it's hard to interpret and understand. It's actually quite the opposite. It's quite simple to understand. It's painful to read. It's a stupidly simple story told over and over and over again. It's a clear cycle repeated throughout the book, and it's a downward spiral. The people distrust and disobey, and they depart from the Lord their God. They go after other gods. The Lord disciplines them, normally sending them some foreign nation to oppress them, some other people, earthly king, to oppress them. The people eventually, and these cycles take years, eventually in great distress, the people cry out in repentance, and the Lord raises up judges, judges deliverers, saviors, to deliver them from their oppressors. This cycle just repeats distrust and departure, discipline, distress, and deliverance. But as the book builds, as I've already said, it's a downward spiral. The people unravel, they get worse and worse. By the end of the book, they're really not even crying out in repentance anymore. The first judges are are moral exemplars. We hear nothing bad about them. Not to say they were sinlessly perfect, but they were these men who were raised up by God, did their godly duty, and went home, it sounds like. No moral muddiness at first. But you read on and the judges get worse and worse. I only need to leave you with the example of Samson, the last judge in the book. And if you can remember beyond just the storybook picture we have of Samson who's big and strong until they cut his hair, right? Samson is a mess. He's a mess. Speaking bluntly, I personally, thank God I'm, I'm not the judge, Right? But I personally, I'm surprised he's mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 because he even goes out on a pretty bad note. He's not a great-looking guy. You don't want your kids to be like Samson. We like he's got big, strong muscles. That's about all we want from Samson. And there are a few chapters after the story of Samson. The book does go on before it ends, and those chapters are as dark and depressing as any in the entire Bible. The awful climax, you could say, of the book of Judges is the story of Gibeah, a town in the tribe of Benjamin that ends up behaving exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah. For an Israelite, there could be nothing more shameful. Here is Israel. Here are the Israelites, and they are no better, no different from Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the opening word of this book. This is how the book of Ruth opens. You're meant to understand it opening with this Paul, this shadow of darkness cast over it. The story of Ruth happens in these days, these dark days. Humanly speaking, these hopeless days. And yet we know this is where all the best stories begin, right? Right? The stories of God's deliverance, his rescue, his reconciliation. This is how salvation has to go. It has to come out of the darkness. It has to come out of famine. And what greater famine is there than death itself? This is where all our stories begin. You were dead in your trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. We need stories like this, stories that begin in darkness, stories that start from the bottom. I don't think I've quoted Lord of the Rings from, at least from this pulpit in some time. I don't think I've done it from my own pulpit in a while, but Samwise Gamgee, if you're at all familiar with the story, you don't have to be. But just listen to this beautiful quote from the Lord of the Rings. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? That's the way this story feels when it opens. I mean, if you don't believe me, go home and read Judges. Read the end of it. Read chapters 19, 20, and 21. How could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand, I know now, folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back. Only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. He's attempting to encourage Frodo, right, with this reminder that remember all those great stories and the people in them, how they didn't turn back even at the worst opposition, even when things were so dark, they lost all hope, they pressed on. Well, unfortunately, the folk in this story do turn back, or at least they turn away. We start in darkness, but things get darker still. Things go further downhill, we could say. The story starts with famine. And right away you're confronted with this fork in the road. The plot thickens as you read the rest of verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now there's a lot that's lost on us culturally. One, because we're not sensitive to what Moab was, how Moab was viewed and perceived by the Israelites, the stigma of Moab. But there's another one that we just we can't pick up in the English without going to the Hebrew. A man of Bethlehem and Judah. Bethlehem. Now we think Bethlehem, we think King David, right? And spoiler alert, if you know where this story is going, it's going to King David. But we think also of Jesus. Bethlehem is significant in the Bible because it's where Jesus comes from. But there's an irony here that's almost comical directly in the story that any Israelite wouldn't miss. Because the name Bethlehem means house of bread. Bet lechem, house, bread. There's a famine in the land, in the house of bread. A famine so great, even the house of bread has no bread. And this speaks to us, doesn't it? Because it's the most difficult darknesses, it's the most painful problems They're the ones we don't expect to face because we think we shouldn't have to. Not here. This is Bethlehem. This is the house of bread. What do you do when famine comes to the house of food? The most difficult darknesses, the most painful problems are the ones we don't expect to face because we think we're right where God wants us to be. And surely famine can't touch this place, right? Christians can't have strained marriages. Christians can't have broken homes. Christians can't go jobless for months. Christians can't go bankrupt. Christians can't get depressed. Be honest. We expect darkness to keep its distance and we expect problems to be a thing of the past when we're in the Lord. We do. We do. And yet, Still they come. It's times when we're right where God tells us to be doing what we're supposed to be doing. So we think that trials trouble us the most because deep down we've all got a little bit of Job's ethic. I don't know if y'all are still in Job. I know Michael was at least recently going through Job. We've all got a little bit of Job's ethic, perhaps modified just a bit. Be a Christian and it'll go well with you. But yes, Christian, sad to say, even your marriage can crumble. Even your family can fall apart. Even your hard work can be ignored and your savings swept away. Even your happiness can wither and dry up. And it's in those times, as believers, who think we are somehow immune to these things, it's in those times when the temptation to distrust and turn away to devise and to implement our own perfectly sensible solutions, that temptation becomes so great. Because difficulty leads to distress, and distress leads to desperation, and desperation leads us to this fork in the road. Will you double down and trust the Lord? Will you cry out in repentance from your own sins as well as the sins that surround us? We're not given any statement of the spiritual quality of Elimelech. We don't know if he's a good and godly man or, or not. We just, we hear what happens. We do know that in the time of judges, just about nobody was a good and godly man. I can tell you this story is going to present to you two very godly people that amaze you and shine bright as the sun if it were to appear in the middle of the night. But the point is, what will Elimelech do? What will you do when desperation leads you to that fork in the road? Will you double down and trust the Lord? Or will you trust your own ideas, your own efforts, and your own abilities Will you trust that you know what's best for you? Ian Duguid agrees, and he asks this question. Which road will each of us choose? Very often in those defining moments in life where we get to direct our own course for the future, the factors that weigh most heavily in our decisions are those that seem most likely to provide us with comfort and security. The bottom line in our lives is rarely God's will as it is revealed in His Word, especially if it seems to cut directly across our best prospects for happiness and success. Comfort and security. How easy it is to go after those things. How easy it is to make our own decisions thinking that, well, there's food over there. There's no food here. I need food. My family needs food. We'll go. We'll go to the fields of Moab. There's there's food there. I've already seen what they've done when presented with the fork in the road. Look a bit more closely at the folly of it. You learn more in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. and The name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons, Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. The great irony in the name Bethlehem is matched only by the irony in Elimelech's name. Elimelech literally means, my God is king. So understand that. In a time when there's no king in the land, right? Why? Because God is the king. This man's name is literally the very desperately needed reminder, God is the king. We trust him. And unfortunately, he proves to be just another everyday, ordinary example of a man who does what seems right in his own eyes. That's what this this amounts to. It's a man doing what seems right in his own eyes, distrusting, disobeying and departing from the Lord. Now you and I don't have an equivalent, right? We're not explicitly commanded by God, live in this place. You've not been told to buy your home in Rock Hill. If you do, that's a wild story and I'd be really curious about it. But the point is, God doesn't give us these moral commands that if you don't stay in Rock Hill, you're sinning. If you don't live in Fort Mill, if I don't remain in Lake What, we're not given that clarity. But for Elimelech, in those days, for an Israelite in those days, he said, I will bring you out of Egypt and into this promised land, and there you will dwell in safety. I will provide for you if you have faith in me, and if you serve me, if you love me. For him to go outside of Israel and to go to Moab is deliberate disobedience. He's a man admittedly under a great deal of pressure. We should sympathize with him. I'm not saying we just cruelly cast stones at him. But instead of trusting the Lord, he does what seems right in his own eyes. One of the challenges of of reading Old Testament stories is that the narrator very rarely gives clear statements of judgment about the goodness or badness of an action or a character right you're very rarely told things like at the end of second samuel 11 the whole story with david and bathsheba and him getting uriah knocked off and he covers it all up and you come to the end of chapter 11 remember the chapter divisions are not inspired but this is probably the best one in all the bible because you think david's got away with it he thinks he's gotten away with it and the very last word of chapter 11 is the thing that david had done displeased the lord and you go oh And it jumps out at you, one, because that's a terrifying thing to hear, but two, because the narrator rarely gives those kinds of comments. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Usually, the goodness or badness of someone's actions in these Old Testament stories, it plays itself out in the story. For instance, some people are troubled that there's no explicit condemnation or criticism of the patriarchs you know, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, David, for instance, taking to themselves multiple wives, and you just say, well, yeah, but read the story. It obviously goes badly for them. No need to tell you, hey, that's bad, stop it, because it goes bad. You should probably stop it. We should probably not imitate them in that. It's pretty obvious if you read. He gives those commands elsewhere, but in the story, you just watch how it plays out, and it's a mess. It's much the same in our story here. We're not told the thing that Elimelech had done displeased the Lord. It's not that clear. It's not stated, at least. But it's pretty clear if you read on. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. And you think, this is Naomi's chance to return home. Whatever her say, whatever her role was in the initial departure from Israel... When Elimelech dies, she still has her two sons with her. This is her chance to repent, to return home. But what happens? Well, they take Moabite wives. The name of the one is Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And rather than return, Naomi and her sons actually double down on this Moabite wandering. It's bad enough they left the promised land and went to Moab. Moab descended from the incest of Lot with his older daughter, whose king hired a prophet, you remember that, to try to curse the Israelites. And when that fails, the prophet can't curse them. So he says, you know what? Just seduce them with your women and lead them astray to worship false gods. This is those people. Same people. And now they're marrying them. Now there is an express commandment against that. And it's not an issue of race but purely of religion because again, these Moabites, they worship other gods. You marry them, you're going to go after those other gods with them. The rest of verse 4 and 5 tell us they lived there about 10 years. Both Molon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Again, whatever Naomi's role in the initial decision to depart here she's a painful demonstration for us. For how easy it is once you've stepped outside to just stay there. There may be some resistance to departing initially. There's some resistance to hop in the fence and go into to the other side where the grass looks greener. But once you're on the other side, it seems like all the resistance goes the other way and now it's so much harder to go back and so much easier to stay. you have to understand that one of the great curses, or really the great curse throughout the Scriptures is exile. To be driven out of the place and the prosperity, driven out of the presence of God, driven away from what He has promised and provided. Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. All the peoples are, you could say, exiled from the Tower of Babel. Israel gets exiled from the promised land. Jesus is exiled from Jerusalem, right? And is that not what the wrath of God being poured out upon him for our sins is? In a sense, it's exile from the presence of God as he pours his wrath out upon him. Elimelech, in his unbelief, exiles himself and his family. He leads them away from the presence and the provision of God. And there's no denying there are consequences to that. Aren't you like Elimelech? I know I am. Quick to lose hope? Forsake faith? Abandon the Lord who's so willing and able to save? If only we would just wait on Him. Or maybe you're like Naomi. You're suffering the consequences of the faithlessness or folly of someone else. And you find it so hard to return And it's just so simple to stay. And as I said, if the story began in darkness, it's even darker now because not only has this woman lost her husband and her sons, the profound grief in that alone can't do more than mention it, certainly couldn't express it in words. But now she's a sojourner. She is a wanderer. She is an alien in a foreign land, a land where sojourners weren't cared for like they were in Israel. Remember, the law actually provided for sojourners and aliens. Israelites were to be gracious to them, not Moabites. When you come to the end of verse 5, you're in a much darker place than you were already at the start of the story. For Naomi, things can't possibly get any worse right now. Even death would be a relief for her. The fact is, wherever you find yourself in this story, the lesson is unmistakable, it's undeniable. The only possible outcome of our wandering from the Lord is suffering and sorrow. I'll never forget what one pastor said in in preaching in in a sermon on the parable of the prodigal son, just a passing comment he made. You remember how the story goes. The son takes his portion of the inheritance, runs off into a foreign land, and he lives it up for a little while until before long he's broke, and he's so desperate for food that he's thinking about eating the pig's slop, right? And the pastor said this. He said, if you've got a historic struggle and you grow weary of laying it before the Lord, battling, and decide to just run full on into it, it'll always feel like freedom for a little bit. And that's what the the grass on the other side is. It it feels like freedom for a little bit. You you hop the fence and it feels good for a little while. It goes well for a little while. It went well for them for an undisclosed amount of time. Certainly got bad at 10 years in. And it's the same in our story. The temptation to depart from the place where the Lord has us, to take the road of self-trust, self-reliance, to chase after comfort, security, happiness, success... It's all folly. It's foolishness. The road may be smooth at first. There's very little resistance. Even Jesus said the road is broad, wide, easy. But it's a dead end. And the Lord in His love for His own will not let them linger there long. Because there is no lasting hope. There is no life in ourselves or in our own desires, our own designs for self-preservation and self-provision. So we're forced to the question, what will bring us back from this folly? What can save us from our own foolishness? What brought the prodigal son back? Is it only the suffering and the sorrow that so stings that you turn back around? Is it only the desperation and despair that caused the prodigal son to return home? You remember the story. Wasn't there something more? And what about this story? You see, both remind us that it's faith that allows even a glimmer of light to shine in the darkness and guide us home. Verse 6, She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. What is it that drives Naomi back to Bethlehem? It's not just the suffering and the sorrow of God's discipline. It's not just the misery of where she is. There has to be something else to pick her up, to give her hope, to drive her back. The suffering and the sorrow had already fallen upon her. She had been miserable for who knows how long. But instead, it's the assurance of God's grace. There's hope. There's mercy. That's what leads her to return. There is bitterness in discipline. And it has its purpose. It's a great deterrent from sin. You get a spanking, it makes you think, maybe I shouldn't do that again. But if all the discipline makes us think, is, well, maybe I shouldn't do that again, and if we just go down the line to some new sin, or if we never turn and go all the way back to the God who desires to save us, to love us, to bring us in, to have us home... The discipline doesn't serve its purpose, and God's discipline does serve its purpose. You see it in repentance. There's bitterness in repentance. Repentance is bitter. And yet repentance, true repentance, is only ever found when it's paired with the sweetness of what faith assures. The discipline will deter, deter us from sin, but it's the assurance of faith that drives us to the one who saves us from sin. She'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. There's mercy. It's the same for the prodigal son. You remember the story? When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. He's saying, At least I can eat there. And you remember his plan? Just make me a hired hand. Just make me a servant. I don't deserve to be your son. But it's the assurance that there is grace. It's the assurance that there is something there. If I just go home, he'll provide. He'll bring me in somehow. And as the prodigal son finds out, the father's mercy and grace are far more extravagant than he could ever have hoped or imagined. And it turns out to be the case in Naomi's story as well. If you know the rest of the story, you know that the point of this entire book is really just to bring us to David. Naomi returns to Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Ruth proves to be a, a worthy woman. Language from Proverbs 31, which, interestingly, in the Hebrew Bible, this is paired next to. Because after Proverbs 31, you read of Ruth, who is the demonstration of Proverbs 31. And she's rescued by Boaz, a righteous redeemer. This guy who sticks out like a sore thumb in a land where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. He is godly. He's righteous. He's righteous. You realize one of the points of this story is to say, even when it seems like darkness is everywhere, there are still specks of light. God is still at work. There is always a remnant. But together, this Ruth and this Boaz, this righteous Redeemer, they turn out to be the great-grandfather, the great-grandmother of King David. And this story moves from barrenness to fullness, fruitfulness, from curse to blessing, from bitter, as Naomi, you may know, changes her name. From Naomi to Mara. From, Naomi means sweet. And she changes it to bitter when she gets back. She says, don't call me sweet, call me bitter. But then by the end of the story, she's back to Naomi. She's back to sweet. It's a story that goes from living in exile to producing the grandfather of a king. There are these defining moments in life, and we can be so tempted when we're in them, when we're in the Lord, to fall into this grass is greener syndrome. But the most important thing for you and I to know is that in these moments, in these decisions, that we are not outside, we are not beyond the power, the providence, the perfect plan of God. The challenge is to not go where the grass is greener. To not depart from the field where the Lord has you. To not think that He has abandoned you. But instead, to stay, and to rest, and to find that He is God. Going back to that quote from Sam, in the Lord of the Rings, I, I left off the last line. Because we're actually... Kind of hop off the boat, so to speak, and disagree in a sense. He says, "Folk in these stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something, and that something, Sam says, is that there is some good in this world and it's worth fighting for." Okay, that's good. I don't, I don't hate that, but I'd rather take my cue from the Apostle Peter. You remember in John's Gospel in the sixth chapter, Jesus speaks of. None can come to me, but the Father draws them. And whoever comes to me must eat my flesh and drink my blood. People are offended and they're, they're leaving in droves. There were hundreds, maybe thousands of people who were drawn to him, enamored with him, and then they all leave. And Jesus turns to the twelve and says, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's what I want to cling to in my story, whatever it involves, wherever it leads, whatever suffering I face, whatever trials and temptations I deal with, that you have the words of eternal life. We've believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To whom shall we go? I said at the beginning, maybe confusing, here we see this path that the Lord can lead his people on. It's not the path I desire for any one of us to go through this wandering and departing and being brought back. But it's sweet, isn't it, that our stories don't end with one bad decision. But might I just encourage you that that doesn't mean we can't make better ones. That doesn't mean we can't cling to the one. We can't cling to the one who gives us life and who saves us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, we are, again, we are amazed at your grace that you would take even broken and lost and wayward and wandering sinners and bring them home. That you would take stories that turn so bitter and make them sweet. that you would bring us out of barrenness and into fruitfulness, that you would lift us up from being exiles and make us your children. So, Lord, help us. Whatever trials we face, whatever situations we find ourselves in, wherever we look around and see that the grass appears to be greener elsewhere, would we not depart from you? Oh, sure, a new job is not a bad thing. A new hobby can't hurt us necessarily. Lord, I don't care about these things. You don't care necessarily about these things. But if we should look outside of your walls, outside of your grace and outside of your goodness and think that the grass ever looks greener beyond what you've promised and provided, Lord, keep us, protect us, hold us firmly in your hand, and would we cling to you as you have so loved us to cling to us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.